Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. I will start this new episode of the podcast by recommending the subscription to a beautiful newsletter called Brain Pinkings by Maria Popova. If you don't know her work, have a look. It's a real gem and a newsletter well worth receiving in your mailbox. In one of those, I found a beautiful excerpt of the book The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volleben that I thought was perfect to introduce this new episode of Gossimon. Why are trees such social beings? Why do they share food with their own species and sometimes even go as far as to nourish their competitors? The reasons are the same as for human communities. There are advantages to working together. A tree is not a forest. On its own, a tree cannot establish a consistent local climate. It is at the mercy of wind and weather. But together, many trees create an ecosystem that moderates extremes of heat and cold, stores a great deal of water and generates a great deal of humidity. And in this protected environment, trees can live to be very old. To get to this point, the community must remain intact no matter what. If every tree were looking out only for itself, then quite a few of them would never reach old age. Regular fatalities would result in many large gaps in the tree canopy, which would make it easier for storms to get inside the forest and uproot more trees. The heat of summer would reach the forest floor and dry it out. Every tree would suffer. Every tree, therefore, is valuable to the community and worth keeping around for as long as possible. And that is why even sick individuals are supported and nourished until they recover. Next time, perhaps, it will be the other way around, and the supporting tree might be the one in need of assistance. A tree can be only as strong as the forest that surrounds it. Today, for our 20th episode of Go Simon, we will explore why and how trees and forests are crucial for our own survival. Our Simon today is Heather Alexander. Heather is Assistant Professor in Forest Ecology in Auburn University in the United States. She is an expert in the areas of forest, fire and disturbance ecology. She studies the impacts of changing fire regimes of forest successional dynamics, influence of tree traits on forest flammability, and the consequences of changing forest composition on forest ecosystem function. With Heather, we talked about the impacts of increasing wildfire severity on forests, how the melting permafrost affect forests, the Zimov experiment and the Pleistocene Park project in Siberia, the benefits and cons of reforestation and offsetting programs, 
Playing God and Scientist and the Activism Dilemma. Hi, Heather. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. My first question is about your roots. I was curious to know where you grew up. In Texas, my family is from a, a very small rural town, less than about 500 people. My parents met there and they were quite young when they had me. They were teenagers and they had a, a pretty tough time at it. My mom, when she was 21, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And at the time I was four and my dad uh, had to start working very young in order to support my family. So they never went to college. I'm a first generation college student, but I was very fortunate because I had two sets of incredible grandparents who I spent a lot of time with when I was growing up. They taught me a lot. I really attribute a lot of my knowledge and my sanity as an adult to my grandparents. One of my grandparents, my dad's mom, was really the one that got me interested in the natural world. And so I'm very thankful for her. She also didn't have a formal education, but was really knowledgeable about trees and flowers. And in this little country town, we would go drive the dirt roads and she would teach me about trees and birds. And we'd walk the creeks looking for arrowheads left behind from the Native Americans. And she was the one who made me feel comfortable outdoors and taught me not to be afraid of that. So is it they nourished this relationship with nature that led you to study biology and marine science and forestry? I think so. I think that's what started it. But to be honest, I was really unsure of what I wanted to do because I grew up in a family that didn't have experience with college. My mother, you know, because she was not educated and had this illness that she struggled with for her whole life and most of my childhood was always very much a proponent of getting a formal education. And so she pushed that with me that I should go to college and that I should be educated. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to study necessarily. Like I was really interested in nature and I loved animals and I've always had a really strong connection to them. And I grew up on the coast. So I love being by the ocean. And so when I went to college, I took biology courses, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't even realize that you could do something in biology as a career other than be a doctor. But I remember taking a biology course when I was a freshman and there was a whole section on botany. I was just enthralled by plants. I couldn't believe how amazing they were and what they could do. You know, so many of us take them for granted. They call it green blindness. They don't even notice the plants around them. And I think I had been that way for a while, but I appreciated plants because of my grandmother, but I didn't really appreciate what they were doing. And I was just so amazed by them when I took this botany course. But then later in college, I was able to take some field-based courses where I actually got to go out into nature and study the systems. I went to the University of Texas, and they have a marine science institute on the coast. And I was really fortunate to have an instructor, Ken Dunton, who taught these field-based courses. We'd go out on the boats, and we'd go into the salt marshes, and we'd walk through the mud and look at plants and see all the animals that were living on those plants or amongst those plants. And I was just, it, to me, it was like, this is what I want to do when I grow up. It was so hands-on, and it was so just being in the system, and it was exciting And so that's really when I was like, if you can make a whole career out of this and I can get excited about what I do every day when I go into work. And so that was really a game changer for me. So why more forestry than marine science or another field? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I had all this experience as an undergraduate student working in coastal systems, and I loved it. And so I ended up doing a master's degree in marine science, but really focused on ecology of coastal marshlands, so focused on plants. And I loved it. But I had always been fascinated with trees. And I can remember even when I was young, this artwork that I would produce as a teenager, just trees of all different shapes and forms. And I always loved the forest. And I knew that if I wanted to be able to learn more that after my master's degree, that I could get a PhD and that would be a great opportunity to make a slight shift in what I was focusing on. In reality, even though I started to study about forest systems during my PhD, it's really not that different than coastal systems. That sounds weird, but really it's about the ecology of the system and trying to understand how plants interact with their environment, how they interact with animals. And that's really what I'm doing in a forest setting now. And so I consider myself an ecologist, somewhat comfortable working in, in a variety of different systems, although now my focus is on forest. How did you become aware of climate change? Is it throughout your studies? Was there a moment where you realized of the phenomenon and the emergency of it? I think so. I don't remember an exact moment, but I remember a time in my life when I became much more aware of it. And that was really when I was an undergraduate student and I was taking those field-based courses on the coast and working with the marine biologists that I mentioned earlier. And I ended up doing my master's degree with him and working in coastal salt marshes that were experiencing pretty dramatic reductions in the amount of freshwater that they were receiving from their river sources. And South Texas, where I was working, is a semi-arid region, but it was, you know, there were these periods of drought, water flow was being reduced dramatically and the salinity of the water that these plants were growing in was becoming very, very high. There was a lot of loss of vegetation cover and a lot of this went back to changes in climate. And so it was very noticeable at that time and we were having a lot of discussions about it. And then also my mentor, Ken Nutton, also happened to work in Arctic systems. He studied kelp that lived beneath thick sheets of ice in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And it wasn't until much later in my career that I started working in the Arctic as well. Because he was working in the Arctic, I was learning about the changes that he was witnessing in the ice sheets and the changes in these kelp populations. And so I learned a lot from him. And so this is, you know, 25 years ago, I think I started to become much more aware of the changes that were happening in the climate and the potential implications it was having for systems across the globe. So I'd like to talk a bit about uh, your research. I was wondering if you could explain what are the impacts of increasing wildfire severity on forests and what are the long-term carbon dynamics that are implied? I'm a forest ecologist, but most of my research focuses on understanding how forests respond to fires. And so thinking about both wildfires as well as the intentional setting of, of fires for specific management objectives of prescribed fires. So the wildfires that are happening so extensively and severely across our planet, I think most people are aware of this. It's happening, especially in the Western U.S. right now, but in Australia, obviously very big changes. And in the Amazon, huge fires that are happening. These fires are linked to changes in our climate. And so as climate is getting warmer, there are more lightning ignitions because we're having more thunderstorms. The fire season is becoming longer and the fuels are becoming drier. Those are key drivers for these wildfires. 
there's also the legacy uh, forest management, particularly in the U.S., that has an impact on the flammability of these systems. And so we here in the U.S. have intentionally excluded fire from forest systems for decades, starting back in the 1930s. And it's only in the last you know, 20, 30 years that we've come to recognize that fires are actually, if they're allowed to occur like they naturally would are a part of these systems. And when you remove fire intentionally, it allows fuels to accumulate and it allows forests to become much more dense than they would be otherwise. And so now when you have unintentional fires that are sparked by human activities, which many of them are, or you have a change in the climate that it causes more lightning emissions and these fires ignite, then they burn more extensively and more severely than they would if we allowed fire to move through the system like it would naturally. You know, in the U.S., we've had millions and millions of hectares that have been burning this last year. And, and so I don't work in, the, in, in wildfire in the U.S., but I do a lot of work in Siberia. And that's a really interesting region in terms of fire because it's very remote. And uh, most of the fires that are ignited by lightning especially are not in regions that we can have any management over them. It's burn and they burn extensively. All of these fires are burning organic material, and so that causes an immediate release of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that can influence climate. But what's important to understand is that even though you have a pulse of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere with these fires, that if the forests recover after fire and through photosynthesis take back up that CO2 that was released into the atmosphere via the fire and store it back into their biomass, there may not be a net change in climate due to the fire. So what's really important is understanding the pulse that's released during the fire of greenhouse gases, but then how much of that is taken back up into the system as the forest recover from the fires. So in Siberia, you also study the changes in permafrost conditions and how that affects forests. Could you explain those mechanisms as well? How are they linked together? Many of the forests that are growing across Siberia are growing atop permafrost. And permafrost is soil that's been permanently frozen for at least two years. And many times these are soils that have been frozen for millennia. And so the forests are growing on top of these frozen soils. There's a very shallow layer at the surface that thaws annually during the growing season. And that's where the roots of the trees and other vegetation live. And so they have a small, a relatively small zone of soil that they can use to take up nutrients and water. So as you can imagine, as fire is moving through these systems, it's burning the vegetation, burning the soil. So there's an organic portion of the soil that lies on top that's dead plant material and wood and other things that are flammable. As that fire goes through and removes the vegetation and removes some of that organic layer, that it causes a pretty dramatic change in the thermal conditions on the ground. So fires leave behind charred soil, so it's black, which absorbs a lot of heat, which then can propagate down into those permafrost soils and cause them to start to thaw. You're also removing vegetation that normally would be shading the ground underneath it and keeping it cooler. So when you remove that, it also causes heating of the soil. And so after fire, there is this deepening in the amount of ground that is thawed atop the permafrost. Typically, this would recover in several decades after a fire as the vegetation starts to re regrow and stabilize that permafrost. 
But you can imagine that if fires become more extensive or burn more severely, that the implications for the permafrost can become quite severe. They can warm much deeper. And one thing that's really interesting about Siberia, and one of the main reasons that we work there, is that the permafrost is not just frozen dirt. It's dirt embedded with wedges of ice. And so Siberia is underlain by kind of a special type of permafrost called yetima. That's a Russian term for this type of permafrost. These ice wedges can occupy about 30 to 50% of the volume of the soil. And so it's pretty interesting. Like if you were to look at a cross-section of the permafrost in that region, you'd see dirt, but then you'd see these massive, highly reflective surfaces that are basically frozen water. So you can imagine that if that ground becomes warmer, it's not just an issue of waking up the bacteria that live in that soil who can then chew on the carbon that's in it, but it's this ice starts to melt it. And so the whole ground can subside and it can cause what's known as thermokarsting. It's basically karst that are created by the heating of the ground and the collapsing of these ice wedges. And so you can actually end up with soils that are thousands of meters beneath the surface being now exposed to the atmosphere, which makes them susceptible to, you know, the organic material and then it's susceptible to decomposition by bacteria and release of that carbon into the atmosphere. And a crazy feedbacks that can happen between fire and permafrost and forest growth. The forests are super important for creating a stabilized ground above the permafrost and protecting it. Do we understand fully the loop effects that this melting of permafrost and then, you know, the revealing of all that vegetation will have in the future? Or is it things that are still very much in, in the process of discovery? There is a tremendous amount of work that's going on right now trying to understand the vulnerability of of permafrost to thaw, both directly from climate warming, but also indirectly from mechanisms like changes in the fire regime and how that influences vegetation dynamics. Yeah, I've been working in Siberia now for over a decade, and we keep coming up with more questions every summer that we spend there. It's fascinating, really, to, to see the system and to watch how it changes after fire. The answer to your question is no, I don't think we fully understand. We we understand that if the permafrost melts, it's going to be a big problem in terms of climate warming because there's a tremendous amount of carbon stored in the permafrost. I wanted to touch on your collaboration with Dr. Sergei Zimov uh, on the restoration of the mammoth steppe ecosystem. So what we call Pleistocene Park, trying to stave off climate change by resurrecting an ice age biome. I was wondering if you could, yes, just tell us more about this project, your contribution, your collaboration, really the ambition. What is it trying to do? So I work out of the Northeast Science Station that's in Chersky, Russia. That station is run by Sergei Zimov, his son Nikita Zimov, and another Russian scientist, Sergei Davidov, who've been running that station since the 80s, which is also when they established Pleistocene Park, which is very near the research station. And the idea of Pleistocene Park is, it's fascinating, really, and it's really quite ambitious given the remoteness of the area that we're working in. The idea there is that there's a potentially a very important role of large herbivores in protecting the permafrost through their impacts on the type of vegetation that's growing across the landscape and their trampling of snowpack 
And so the idea is that when you have pretty high density of herbivores on the landscape, and this is similar to the mammoth steppe ecosystem that existed during the Pleistocene when the climate was much warmer. So woolly mammoths, wild horses, there are a variety of different mega herbivores that coexisted in the Siberian landscape at that time. What Sergei and Nikita are trying to do are recreate that. So they're bringing in bison and yaks and musk oxen and horses and caribou and moose putting them into this fenced park and then letting the animals basically control vegetation. And their idea is that through herbivory, these animals will keep the trees out of the system and it'll turn it into more of a grassland or steppe ecosystem. Grasses, because they're much lighter, their foliage is much lighter in color than that of the trees that dominate the region, which are large trees, which are a needle leaf conifer. That highly reflective surface of the grasses will reflect a lot of energy back into the atmosphere, and that has a cooling effect on the system. So grasses have a stronger cooling impact on the atmosphere than trees do because of differences in their, it's called albedo, their reflectivity of their surfaces. Mm. The animals also hypothetically would keep the permafrost cool because they trample snow. Snow, as you can imagine, covers the ground for a large proportion of the year. Snow has an insulating effect. So most of us, when we think of snow, we think of cold. The snow has very high porosity and low bulk density. And so it keeps the ground beneath it warmer than it would be if that ground did not have snow on top of it. And this is especially important in the Siberian winters because it's super, super cold. If there wasn't snow insulating the ground, then the ground would become much colder than it was and so animals, through their trampling effects on the snow, actually expose the ground beneath to colder temperatures and it keeps permafrost. It protects the permafrost and keeps it cold. So those are the two major mechanisms by which the Zimovs are, are proposing that this rewilding of the Siberian Arctic could mitigate climate change. There's also some evidence that grasses store a lot of carbon, particularly below ground in their roots, and they have pretty high productivity rates. And so they're able to take a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere quickly. That would be another mechanism by which converting it from a forested area to grasslands might be able to mitigate climate change. There's a talk of reintroducing, well, trying to grow in a lab mammoths. Why mammoths are actually really important in that project? Recreating the mammoth. You know, there's lots of talk about that. And Sergey certainly has that as a, as a goal and talks about it. Mammoth are huge, right? So they consume a lot of vegetation and they would trample a lot of ground. And so I think it's this idea that you have not just herbivores, but you have mega herbivores, an animal that could impact a large amount of space. And so if you had giant herds of woolly mammoths, that would be much more impactful than having, say, herds of caribou, simply because of their size and their ability to impact much more vegetation and much more ground beneath it. And the interesting thing about Pleistocene Park is that it certainly has brought a lot of attention to the importance of the permafrost, attention that I don't think would have been generated without that project. You know, every year that I go to the research station, we stay for a month, maybe a little bit longer. In the last few years, we didn't get to go this year because of COVID, but every mm. the years prior to that, there were more journalists at the research station than, than scientists at times because yeah. Pleistocene Park has been getting so much attention, which mm -hmm. is great because now people are thinking about the permafrost and thinking about the influence on climate and feedbacks between permafrost and climate warming. 
the feasibility of the project, I don't know. I mean, Siberia is quite remote and it's very difficult terrain with a lot of uh, topography and mountains and rivers and other things that could have a tremendous impact on the ability of herds of animals to move and to you know, be brought in through wilding efforts. It's certainly worth exploring. That's one thing I love about Sergei is that he's quite the visionary and willing to undertake such a dramatic project in an incredibly difficult part of the world to work in. We did do some measurements at Pleistocene Park a couple of years ago. We put out game cameras to observe the animals that were moving around the park. We measured some vegetation dynamics and some thaw depths or depth of thaw of that layer of the ground that thaws annually to see how it changes. And we tried to get some funding to do more extensive work there, but have not been successful. I think there's a lot of opportunity for scientific research in the park if you can find appropriate funding sources. There's definitely interest in trying to uh, better understand the feasibility of doing such a project, right? But it's very difficult to control for. And so this is one of the issues, I think, is that in order to test a hypothesis about the role of animals in the system, you would have to have pretty good data from animal-impacted versus non-impacted areas or pre- and post-rewilding And you would have to be able to keep other factors the same between those two areas. And so it's quite difficult because you have to fence in areas and then you have to keep the animals alive during the winter. That's a big issue is that, you know, they're bringing animals in from various parts of the world. And during the winter time, food sources are pretty low. And so sometimes they have to subsidize the food for the animals. It's just a complicated system to work in. And so Sergey and Nikita have some data. They have uh, some temperature sensors and boreholes that go deep into the permafrost, both inside and outside the park, where they have shown that there's been a decrease in the permafrost temperature in the area that the animals are in. But I think in order to definitively say that that impact is happening, that you would have to have multiple sensors in multiple locations and you would have to do it in a much more controlled setting. But Sergey, you know, he's very, very convinced that this is this is working and that this could have large impacts if done more extensively. And he also has a smaller park that he started outside of Moscow that's not on permafrost, but it's a rewilding effort and showing how the animals can change the vegetation dynamics. Because one thing you have to remember is that the vegetation are influencing climate, not just by taking up CO2, but but also through their albedo and also through how they influence water cycling. So they can cool climate through what's called evaporative cooling. So basically releasing water as a byproduct of the photosynthetic process. What do you think personally of those initiatives that consist in tinkering with the environment? Sergei is trying to do is is really some sort of bioengineering of, of that whole space. Some would say playing God. What do you think? So, I mean, I have my skepticism about most of the ideas of tinkering <laughs> to try to fight climate change, mainly because I think that they distract us from the more important things that we need to be doing, like cutting fossil fuel emissions and thinking about renewable energy sources. I think that the ideas, you know, especially Sergey's idea, I think is useful because it brings attention to a really important part of the system and that people who weren't thinking about permafrost are now thinking about permafrost in ways that they never thought about it before. So I think that that's very, very important. And I'm glad to see that happening. 
But I think a lot of the ideas that people have in terms of like geoengineering or bioengineering are sometimes, uh, you know, I, I can see their attractiveness, but I don't really think that there's any grand technical solution to the problem. I think we have to change our lifestyle and work to recognize and appreciate our interconnectedness with this planet. Some of the ideas have merit, I think, but I think that we need to focus on the more obvious solutions to the problem. One solution which is often put on the table, especially by the corporate or offsets program, one of those offsets is, is to compensate emissions by planting trees. What do you think of this approach? The idea of carbon offsets can be good if the companies or the individuals who are buying them allocate that money to fund projects that help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So like reforestation, that could be a good uh, solution to some extent. The issue that I have with offsets sometimes is they don't often change the way that companies are operating. So it's better than nothing, but other changes to reduce emissions like cutting back on energy use or switching to more renewable energy sources should occur simultaneously, I think, with purchasing these offsets. Sometimes they're seen as sort of an easy way to feel better about a bigger problem. But in terms of reforestation, I think that that has some merit for a variety of different reasons that extend beyond just the climate mitigation effects. I think that forests have many, many important roles on this planet. Part of it is that they do take up CO, trees can take up CO2 from the atmosphere, which could have a mitigating effect on climate to some degree. Forests are also incredibly important for biodiversity, for the quality of our air and our water. Reforestation, if it's done properly, can be an incredible asset to the planet for many different reasons. There are limitations to reforestation. And so uh, you hear a lot about this in the press and people are pushing for like, well, plant a tree, save the planet. It's slightly more complicated than that. So when is it good and when is it not good? Well, although I'm guessing the response is very complex. It is complex. And I don't think it's not good. I think the not good part of it is thinking that it's the solution. Just if we go out and plant a bunch of trees, we're going to save the planet. It's not that simple. A lot of the area that's available for planting isn't necessarily the most productive part of the planet, right? Like a lot of the available land that you could reforest is in high latitude systems. So very, very cold. Trees are growing very, very slowly. They're not super productive. They're also susceptible to fire. So if they burn, that's a pulse of, of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And then also there's a limited, you know, We're fertilizing the atmosphere with CO2. That's something the trees and other plants need for their growth. But the response is not linear. So it's not like if you just keep putting more and more CO2 into the atmosphere, that the trees are just going to keep sucking up more of that CO2 and putting it into their biomass and their metabolism. So they start to become limited to buy other things. Trees need, all plants need more than CO2 for their growth. They need water, they need nutrients, um, they need space. There's some threshold to which they cannot take up any more CO2, even if that CO2 is available because they're limited by some other resource. You have to think about the forest, not just as the trees, right? It's a whole ecosystem that includes other types of vegetation. It also includes the soil. The soil is incredibly important for storing carbon, but can also be a source of carbon. So as temperature increases, it has some impact on the growth of plants, but it also speeds up respiration of bacteria and other microbes that are living in the soils. And so that can be a source of CO2 into the atmosphere. The ability of trees to take up and store carbon changes depending on their age and their size. You know, one thing about reforestation is that it sort of assumes that the forest just becomes a forest. <laughs> 
And really what happens is that what you see on the landscape when a forest is matured is not the same as what it was when that forest first established. It has to undergo stages of succession, so we call. So oftentimes you'll have early on in the establishment of a forest, you would have maybe some grasses and you would have other types of herbaceous vegetation. And then eventually you'll start to get a tree seed established and turn into a seedling. And then over time, you might have some of those early successional trees that grow very quickly, but don't have long lifetimes will die and then new trees will come in. So it's this process that unfolds over time through different stages. In restoration and reforestation efforts, you go out and plant a tree. It can be done correctly, but oftentimes the reforestation efforts, it's basically go out and plant a tree and walk away. Planting a tree is easy. It's getting that tree to survive and grow is the hard part. <laughs> I came across that article from Nadine Hunger. I'm not sure if I pronounce her name right. It was pretty controversial at the time she published it because it had a provocative title. It was called To Save the Planet, Don't Plant Trees. It was basically questioning the benefits of reforestation as a whole. And apparently other studies led in the Amazon rainforest showed that trees account for around half of the Amazon total methane emissions. I was just curious to know your thoughts on these studies that go against the classic assumption that trees help the planet cool down. Right. So I think it is highly variable depending on what you're talking about. And so it's problematic to make sweeping generalizations about good or bad in terms of reforestation. Because if you think about a tropical rainforest that's being converted for other land uses like agriculture, putting that back into forest can have a lot of benefits, right? Because there's a tremendous amount of diversity that depended on that system. And that's what that system was historically. And so I think reforesting something back to that was a forest and trying to get it back to what was its historical or pre-destructed state could be quite beneficial for many, many reasons. But the idea of just like putting forest everywhere because the trees will take CO2 out of the atmosphere is a very different kind of thing. And there are trade-offs, like I said before. Trees do take up CO2 out of the atmosphere, but they influence the climate through their albedo also. And so if you're taking a grassland that has really high reflectivity and emits a bunch of energy back into the atmosphere, through that mechanism, and then you're turning it into a forest that has very dark foliage and absorbs a lot of energy, then that could have a net warming effect. I think it's about thinking about what the system was originally, what its ecological role is, both locally and for the planet, and then also thinking about the trade-offs that exist between the climate effects of the vegetation via its role in taking up greenhouse gases through albedo and through evaporative cooling. All of those things come into play. Coming back to your research, what are your findings on effective forest management techniques for recovery and regeneration? What can be done so that we better manage our forests? And I'm guessing again that it may vary from a landscape to another. In your field, in what you've studied, have you found anything that work particularly well and still would work in the current very changing conditions? I work in a variety of different forest settings. I have my work in Siberia, but I also work here in the U.S., primarily in temperate forests of the eastern U.S. And so these forests are pretty heavily managed and they're managed for a variety of different reasons. 
one thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about and studying is the role of disturbances in these forests and how these disturbances influence forest recovery and regeneration. So that's, I spend a lot of time thinking about fire. And like I mentioned before, you know, fires in the U.S. at least was a disturbance that we intentionally removed from our forest for decades and and are now understanding the important ecological role that fire can have in the system when fire is happening in a way that the system is is used to. So meaning fire is a natural disturbance and is needed for most forests to recover and regenerate. It's just when fire gets out of whack because we've messed with it or because we're messing with the climate that it becomes problematic. And so I'm working particularly in in oak forests and some in pine forest in the Southeast. And these are all forests where fire is a natural part of their disturbance regime. So we're doing a lot of work thinking about putting fire back into these systems and trying to understand what type of fire that the system needs, how frequently does it need to burn, what type of year does it need to burn, what does that do to the seedbed, what does that do to the structure of the forest and the light conditions that the recovering trees are growing up in. And in oak forests that I've been working in for a long time, you know, we're starting to really understand that these forests originally established under a pretty heavy fire regime. I mean, fire was coming through the system every five to seven years or so, but it was pretty low severity. And that happens when when you don't suppress fire because fuels don't accumulate. So you'd have these periodic fires come through, prepares the seed bed, it opens up the canopy. It creates a fuel bed that allows for low severity fires to come through. So grasses and other herbaceous plants are thriving in the understory and they're pretty flammable. In that state, you can have a pretty healthy forest ecosystem. One key thing is to understand that fire is not necessarily a bad thing. The press catches on to these big, massive wildfires, and that's what we see more of. And and we should be seeing what's happening with these fires because it is so devastating for human life and, and property and ecosystems. But it's important to understand that those are wildfires that are happening because the system is out of balance and that we've been involved in creating that imbalance. And so it's really about getting the system back into some balance and helping the system experience this natural disturbance in a way that it evolved to experience. I'd like to briefly touch on ecofeminism, on the links between women and the patriarchal society and the harm to nature. It highlights the fact that it's mainly because our society is governed by men that uh, there's also harm to nature. Is it something that resonates with you? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept, honestly. You know, I mean, there's definitely a link between our economy and the environment. And it seems that most of those that are in charge of the economy are are men. And I've also seen studies that say there are gender differences in terms of how the environment is valued. And I'm not totally sure what that stems from, if it's something that's um, taught to us culturally or it's something innate in us. You know, I definitely have more conversations with women in general about the importance of interconnectedness. And the fact that humans are a part of the natural world and that we're all in this together. Planet's health is intimately linked to our own health and the food that we eat and the water that we drink and the air that we breathe. It is interesting to think how the role of a patriarchal society is linked to the devastation of our natural world. This idea of personal gain and thinking a lot about accumulation of wealth and having things (laughs) is definitely a big part of our society. Unfortunately, it's having a, a tremendous negative effect on the planet. 
Do you happen to face sexism in the environment you're in? I'm not sure if actually forestry field is very male-focused or very female-focused or if there's a good balance. I was just curious to know if you faced sexism while working or defending your ideas or carrying projects. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's very interesting, particularly being forestry. Forestry is traditionally a very male-dominated field. And I think a lot of that is because forestry, you know, most people, they think of forestry and they think of cutting down trees, you know, logging and uh, using heavy equipment. And there's this image of needing a big burly man to be able to do those outdoor, potentially physically demanding activities. But the reality is, is that forestry is much more than that. It's much more holistic, integrated field that does have that component to it, but it's really about managing natural resources and utilizing their products in a sustainable way. I think forestry is behind a lot of other natural resource fields in terms of that image. There are many, many examples I could give you of meetings that I've been in and been the only woman in the room or been the only woman on a committee. The last department I was in, we had, when we were fully staffed, I think 30 faculty members and three of them were women. So 10%, our undergraduate student body is about 10% women. I mean, it's definitely there. It's getting better, I think, partly because people are seeing that it's an issue and there's been more initiatives to increase diversity. And it's not just with women. I mean, it's other underrepresented groups as well. So it's typically been a very white male dominated field. The role of mentorship, I think, is super important in having people who come from underrepresented groups who can mentor young people and help them understand that this can be a place for them and that they can be comfortable and that they can develop confidence that helps them be successful in the field. Yes, it's still an issue, but I think there are quite a few of us who are trying very hard to overcome that image and to create a sense of welcomeness for people who haven't traditionally been in the field. I've shared with you some articles uh, prior to this uh, interview. I'm interested in your comment. It has been published in Roar magazine and was written by Max Avon and called Orcas or not taking nature's revenge, but we should. Echoing a story that came out in the press on some Orcas attacking apparently some fishing boats in the European water. And ultimately this article calls for pretty much a total reinvention of our relationships with nature, as you have been highlighting already, including the economic paradigm we live in, capitalism. Do you think our current economic system is compatible with the respect of the Earth's natural limits? It's such a good question. I really enjoyed reading that article. Um, one, because I, you know, I, I love killer whales and orcas. I think they're amazing and incredibly smart creatures. And I do think that it's sort of easy to think that nature is taking revenge. And I can remember thinking this when COVID first started, was that the planet's getting back at us for all the stuff we've done to it. But ultimately, I do think that our entire system is set up for self-indulgence and accumulation of stuff. The idea of interreliance kind of goes completely out the window with capitalism. You know, the idea of capitalism is accumulation and growth. More, 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 and more. And I don't know how you can have that model operating well with one of sustainability. 
It's really interesting. One of the points they brought up in the article was this idea that nature is something that is ours to do whatever we see fit with, ours to control rather than ours to protect. It focuses on a disconnect of humans from nature, which I think is the problem, right? Like we have to be able to understand that, you know, we're all part of this grand interconnected world and that what we do has an influence on everything else. Unfortunately, I don't really see capitalism is fitting in with that. And I don't see capitalism going away either. The second article uh, was uh, published in The Guardian and written by Michael Mann, who is a climate scientist. And it's called The Second Trump Term Would Be Game Over for the Climate. Uh, so the title says it all in as uh, you're someone living in the U.S. It was difficult to not ask you your sentiment uh, as we approached the presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trump certainly hasn't done anything to um, help with climate issues, that's for sure. I remember reading an article, I think in the New York Times a while ago, about the dozens and dozens of environmental rules that were had either been rolled back or were currently in the process of being rolled back. And so pretty much it's been a free-for-all for climate. And, you know, the IPCC recommendation of limiting our global temperature increases to less than a, a degree and a half Celsius, you know, that requires that we have our emissions by 2030, which I don't see happening if Trump gets reelected because he's too connected with the fossil fuel industry. And so there's a lot of fear about tipping points, you know, that we don't fully understand. You know, right now it's kind of like we keep emitting, the temperature keeps going up, but there are all these feedbacks, right? that can happen, like with permafrost. Like at what point will the permafrost melt? At what point will we have so many wildfires that the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted causes dramatic changes in temperature and then droughts and really all these things feed back to warming and it could cause a vicious cycle. We would really need strong U.S. leadership to limit rising temperatures. And I just don't see that happening with Trump in office. So it's not a promising image, unfortunately. You know, huge forest approaching tipping point. I think they were releasing yesterday an article in The Guardian on the Amazon approaching a tipping point to transform itself into a savanna. How do you keep being hopeful for the future in this context? My PhD advisor, I saw her last summer and we were talking about our, my work in the Arctic and she was like, how do you, how do you do this every day? How do you not just feel so overwhelmed and And it's a good question, right? I mean, it, as individuals, it all feels, I mean, at least to me, it feels out of our control oftentimes it, because it feels like it's something so big, it's hard to know where to start. And it's overwhelming at times to see the devastation that climate change is having on our planet. I think ultimately hope comes from having a core set of values that you feel comfortable living by. And for me, that's about prioritizing planet and our role my role in protecting it. And I realized that as an individual, there's only a limited amount of things I can do, but I can do things like vote and I can rally behind politicians that I think will impose the regulations that will be needed to protect our planet. I try to have constructive thoughts and set goals and strategies for things that I can do. And, you know, I'm trying to not drive to work every day and I'm trying not to buy clothes every season. And I'm trying to be very cognizant about the food that I eat and where that food is produced. And those are things that I feel align with my core values and that I have some control over. 
There's a traditional um, boundary between science and, and politics, but uh, most recently we've heard some voices saying it's time for scientists to become activists too. Some even inviting scientists to endorse a mass civil disobedience. For you, is it, is it crossing a line? Are you an activist yourself? How do you approach your career in science and then your ideas, your political engagement? It's such a tricky question, and I do think that I I keep them separate professionally for them for the most part. Although I obviously have my own personal views on things, but I think a lot of scientists are introverts, and, and a lot of us, um, you know, don't feel comfortable. I mean, I'm making a generalization here, but I'm thinking about myself and my peers. But a lot of us don't feel super comfortable speaking out very loudly about our, our personal views. We, and, you know, we rely heavily on data to support whatever we're doing. It's about accumulating data to either support a trend or not support a trend. And that will, the realm we often feel comfortable operating in is that. And so I don't see myself as an activist. And I understand why some people are more activist, especially with regards to climate change. I mean, I certainly will have conversations with people about it. Would you have a book, movie, uh, art piece, something you would like to recommend to our listeners? I've always been attracted to pieces that blend the human experience of people's stories and how they connect with the natural world, especially things about childhood memories and growing old and family and working outdoors. And so recently I was at the art museum in Memphis, Tennessee, and there was this really amazing artist. His name is Carol Clore. He's from the Southern U.S. and he spent a lot of time in Memphis. And he has, if you look him up online, he has a lot of really cool pieces. And one of them is him thinking about his, his father as a, a big tree. And so his pieces are sometimes kind of surreal, but they blend his childhood memories with nature. And I really like that. One of my favorite novelists and poet and who is also an activist is Wendell Berry. Stories about the struggles of farmers and our changing perceptions of nature and the consequences of the loss of our connection to the land, especially as people move out of rural areas into cities in order to get jobs. And, the, you know, many core families are disintegrated and people becoming more and more distant from their parents and their grandparents. And so he has a lot of really good books that and poems as well that focus on that topic. And one of my uh, favorite books is called Memory of Old Jack. Excellent. Thank you so much for this recommendation and thank you for your time, Heather, and your insights into your research and thoughts on the world we live in today. Well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. I'm glad that I could be here and share some of my thoughts and experiences with you and your audience. Thank you so much for listening to our 20th episode of Go Simon. It was edited by Karen Crossan. If you liked this interview, please share it on your socials or support us via our crowdfunding campaign currently opened on TP. All the details are available on our website, gosimon.org. Even a small donation goes a long way in helping us amplifying women voices who are working in the climate and social justice space. Thank you. See you in two weeks.